you would look on page 14 of your worship folder, you'll find our scripture text there. I do want to add a little bit to it, a couple verses ahead of it. Um, so if you're following along in your Bibles, you can actually pick up in verse 32, technically verse 32b, but uh, you'll get <laughs> They don't really often split these things up, right? Hear God's word to us this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for the stars are different. Star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. The word of the Lord. Oh God, we pray that you meet us this morning in these words about the resurrection body. We pray that you give us an imagination for that resurrection body that is to come, to which all of our life is drawing near. And may we grapple, and may we glory, and may we delight in that resurrection that has already taken place in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who conquered sin and death and ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father and will someday come to make all things right. So meet us wherever we find ourselves this Easter morning and give us that Easter joy and hope in the resurrection. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Christian life for Paul is about living into the resurrection body that you will someday possess. In a way, that's how you could summarize um, 
the whole Christian life for Paul is it's living into the resurrection body that someday you will possess. Jesus Christ, as the first fruits of resurrection, has already conquered sin and death, corruption and the curse. He is, as Paul says earlier, he is the first fruits. And we're in the time of spring and we see the first fruits of spring now as you see daffodils and tulips and lilacs and things bursting out of the ground, which has been cold and dead and brown. And the resurrection of Jesus, according to Paul, is like the first fruits of what is to come of the new creation. The old order, the one that was dominated and ruled like an iron cage of death and corruption, has been broken. And something new has come into the world, something completely new. And the whole world will someday be like that. For Paul, the hope of resurrection is not just the hope of life after death, but it is the power to live today. It's the power over sin. It's the power over the powers of the devil, of those things that hold us in bondage. And for Paul, the resurrection life is really the hope of the moral life. And Paul has this, uh, and the, re- the verses I read right before you um, might have caught you off guard. Of course, this chapter, which is a very long chapter, that we're picking up just a little portion of it. So if the dead are not raised, Paul says, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What he's saying is this, is if, if there's no resurrection, <laughs> if the body doesn't really matter, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Eat, drink, be merry, live as if there's nothing ahead. But if there is, that changes. Don't be deceived. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and don't go on sinning. It's interesting that Paul puts this admonition in the middle of this passage about the resurrection. And he basically says, because the resurrection is true, stop sinning. Stop sinning. Those of you who grew up in the church and have read this book of Corinthians know that the Corinthian, um, the Corinthian church was sort of what you might call Paul's problem church. Um, it was a church that had all kinds of moral problems, sexual problems. They had um, pride issues. They were divided. I mean, you have almost every conceivable kind of moral mishap that happens in this book. And it's interesting that Paul just in a litany almost goes from one problem to the next, to the next, to the next. And then we get to the very end of the book, which is this long chapter on the resurrection. And if you're not reading carefully, you might think, what, what does resurrection have to do with all these moral and moral problems of this congregation? But for Paul, it has everything to do with the resurrection because all of the problems that the Corinthians are dealing with in one way or another is a misunderstanding, a misapprehension of what it means to have a body and what it means to understand that this body will be raised from the dead, that Jesus' body was raised from the dead. The resurrection is the moral hope of our lives. And for Paul, that uh, plays a very strong place in his thinking. Just um, a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, I preached on 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul is challenging the Corinthian congregation. There are men that are going to visit prostitutes, and Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And that word sexual immorality is the word porneia. And it means all variety of sexual sin. He's not just... that He's saying the body is not meant for porneia, for sexual immorality. The body is meant for the Lord. And he says this. He says... By the, by, 
By his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, and he will raise our bodies also. He's saying, don't mistreat your body sexually, because your body belongs to God, and that God will raise it. He raised Jesus' body from the dead, and so you have to change the way you think. Every sin, every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so Paul makes this argument about sexual immorality and sexual, based on an understanding of the body and the resurrection. Your body belongs to God, he says. Your body was bought with a price, the price of Jesus Christ. So we've been reflecting on this idea um, on, on, on sexuality uh, through the course of the year. And uh, after Easter and heading into summer, uh, we will finish this series. Um, and I want us to explore this idea of, of what I want to call a new creation sexuality. A new creation sexuality that with the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of his body, there is a transformation. There is something new about having a body that transforms how we think about our sexuality. Jesus' body, according to Paul, is the cornerstone. It's the material cornerstone of a new heavens and a new earth. And you, you can think about it as this. It's at the resurrection, what happened is Jesus' body was resurrected, a human body, and it went to heaven. And it was as if God set in place the foundation and the cornerstone of an entire new galaxy, a new heavens and a new earth. It all will be built around that body. It is the fundamental material of the new creation. That's what Paul is teaching in this, this chapter and throughout his writings. And this resurrection is actually not, it's a vindication of the old creation that was good, and yet there's a transformation to it. We've been reflecting on this idea of the body for the past year, and I just want to recap very briefly, because it's helpful for us to understand, because we don't tend to think in terms of the body. The body is this thing we have. It's like an instrument that we use, but we don't tend to think about our bodies with the same kind of weight and glory and magnitude in which the Bible and Paul himself thinks about it. But if you recall, at the very beginning of our sermon series, I talked about, we talked about the creation. We looked at Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, that the human body is a handcrafted by God. He, he, he shapes it like a potter, and he breathes life into it, which means the human body is good, and it's a gift, and that the human body is created in the image of God, and the human body is created male and female, and male and female come together to create one flesh. And so we looked at this idea of the creation body. It was a body that before the fall was naked and unashamed. But then during the season of Lent, we looked at this idea of that our bodies are fallen. When Adam and Eve eat of the tree, the very first thing that they realize is that they're naked. And they want to cover themselves. There's a sense of our bodies are now clothed with shame and with brokenness. The curse has impacted our bodies. We have broken bodies. And I don't need to say too much about this because we all know what it means to have a body that doesn't quite do what you want it to do. There's disorder. There's dysphoria. There's incompleteness about our bodies as a result of the fall. And now we move to resurrection the resurrection of the body is the promise of the transformation and the renewal and the healing of our bodies. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to basically lay the foundation of what kind of, what does it mean to have a resurrection body? What does it mean to have a resurrection body? 
It's a glorious thing. And that, what I want to do, what I hope to do this morning is just sort of enlarge your imagination with the glory of the resurrection body, that this is the body that, that, that to be in Christ, God is pulling you towards. And it makes a difference not just when you die, but right now. So what does it mean to have a resurrection body? There's, there's three things I want us to reflect on that I think Paul teaches us here in this text. One, to have a resurrection body is to have an in-between body. An in-between body. To have a resurrection body is to have an integrated body. And to have a resurrection body is to have a worldly body. Now, we have to admit that when we try to imagine the resurrection and what will my body be like after the resurrection, we lack a lot of imagination, I think. We tend to think, well... I will probably have the body that was the best me. So probably for me it was like 24 when I was, you know, thin and, you know, the signs of aging were not there. And we we tend to think about the resurrection of the body as, well, I'll probably have that body, whatever, you know, my ideal body was. And Paul says something here. He says, you know, don't be foolish. (laughs) He says to the Corinthians, Someone will ask, this is verse 35, how are the dead raised? This is an objection. This is an objection. Because again, the Corinthians are like, this is ridiculous, this whole resurrection of the body. <clears throat> what kind of body do they come? And Paul says, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So the, the, the objection was this from the Corinthians, and I think many of us probably share this objection. Why on earth would I want this body in heaven, right? I mean, this body, I mean, there was a way that we often think about resurrection as something basically like resuscitation, right? In heaven, I kind of polish me up, make me my best self. And Paul is saying, don't be so foolish. Have an imagination for what God is doing The reality of Jesus' resurrection body means that the body we possess today, in a sense, is an in-between body. It is the body that will be resurrected, and yet it will be a different body. It will be a transformed body. It will be a different body in the sense that it won't look simply the same. To have an in-between body means that we have bodies in transition. We and our bodies live between two ages, an age of decay and of corruption and of the curse and of degradation. I mean, I just noticed this morning, looking in the mirror, that I have a lot more gray hairs than it seemed like I had last week. There's, there's a way that, that the aging of our lives, like as we grow older, our bodies tend to break down. We don't necessarily become more beautiful physically as we get older. There is a sense that the reality of death and decay grips our bodies and that we don't, in a sense, know what it means to have this resurrected body. And yet Paul is saying, though, that and nevertheless, there is this resurrection life that is already streaming into our life through our hearts that we have hope for. We stand as people that on the cusp of two ages. That's part of what it means to be in between and in transition and so on the one hand, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, Look, listen, there is co- the, the continuity, in other words, that thing that stays the same between this age and the age to come is your body. And this is a very important point. The, the, the thing that will stay the same, the thing that will be continuous between right now 
And that time when the new heavens and new earth are full is your body, not your soul. Your body. It's your body that God will transform. It's not, so in other words, it's your body in which you connect with God. It's your body that is the focal point of God's salvation, which is the resurrection. It's the resurrection of the body. It's not the resurrection of souls. Your body is the focal point of God's redemption and restoration, which means that material reality matters to God. Don't spiritualize. Don't spiritualize the body as if it'll be some sort of immaterial thing. And I think I just, I, I couldn't resist um, a comment at this point upon our culture's obsession with zombies. I don't, I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many of you watched The Walking Dead. Shame on you. <laughs> shame, shame, shame on you. It's so gory. <clears throat> I have no idea what that show is about. But if, you've, if, you wanna, if you want an understanding of what the resurrection body is like that Paul is talking, it's basically the complete opposite of, of a zombie, right? We, we think of a zombie as, as um, the living dead, right? It's, it's, it's the, the zombie culture is the worst aspects of human nature still living, right? And I think sometimes we, we have no imagination for how actually the resurrection is the complete opposite of that. That actually it's, and, and, here, and here's where Paul's just so amazing. I never understood this actually until really yesterday. Um, it struck me in a new way. Reading that when Paul is referring to seed, and he says, bear kernel goes into the ground, and then it comes up. We see a lot of the tulip bulbs coming up right now, right? If you look at a tulip bulb, it looks like an onion or like a shallot. Now, if you've never seen a tulip before, and you look at that bulb, is your mind going to go that this kind of ugly bulb that gets stuck in the ground, become, will it become a beautiful flower? No, your, your mind can't go there, right? You just look at the bulb, and what Paul, what Paul is saying is this, is your body, in a sense, is like that bulb. I mean, you look at it, and you think, there's nothing impressive. Why would I want to take this to the other side? Just get rid of it. Give me something completely new. But what Paul is saying is this, your body is like that bulb. It's like this seed that goes into the ground and dies. And at the resurrection, God will make it beautiful. Beautiful in a way that you can't even imagine. It dies and it comes to life. And, and, and what that means is, is that it will be whole. It will be completed, right? You, you think about an acorn or a bulb and everything that it, it is and will be is contained in that material and yet you don't see the fullness of it. And it's the same in your life and in my life that, that what you will be, you don't know yet. And yet it's all there, right? In, in a sense, in your DNA, and yet it'll be glorious beyond your imagination. Don't be foolish, Paul says. Have an imagination for how God will recreate. So there's, there's this continuity, right, of material, but there's a discontinuity. There's a, there's a disjunction that God will transform in ways that we can't possibly imagine. He will give us whole bodies, integrated bodies. Uh, look again at our text. And Paul says in verse 42, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, the hope of having a resurrection body is the hope and the longing for having a body that is fully integrated, that is fully put back together again. 
Well, Paul references our bodies as being sown in dishonor. Another word you might think of there is, is this idea of shame, that our bodies are, we have these ashamed bodies that after the fall, and I, as I mentioned earlier, the first impact of sin in the world was a, a sense of the brokenness of the body, that my body is shameful, I need to cover it, I need to hide it, that I no longer am at home in my body. And we've spent the past seven or eight weeks talking about what it means to have ashamed bodies, gender dysphoric bodies, bodies whose sexual desires don't point in the direction we want them to, that God designed them to, bodies that are lonely and isolated, that retreat from community, that retreat from others, bodies that don't have all their functioning, bodies that are dishonorable, bodies that are sown in weakness. That's the body that we often experience today, and what Paul is saying is that that you will have a glorified body. And a glorified body is an integrated body. It is a body that has been fully put back together again. A body that can stand naked and unashamed because it doesn't have anything to hide. A body that doesn't have the disconnection and the disjunction and the dysphoria, but one that is beautiful and symmetrical and integral, whole, lacking in nothing. I've talked in the past about how for Paul and his imagination in, in the New Testament especially that the body is very, the way that the ancient people thought about the body is not the way we do. We, we think about our bodies as these isolated units, you know, but in the ancient world the body was like a microcosm. It was, it was porous, it, it was like a sponge and there's all these things that come in and out. I use the example that the body is like an intersection, like Brady and Farwell and Cambridge. Like it's this place of intersection, of relationships, of how we connect with the world, and the world connects with us, and how we connect with community. And the, the integration of the body that Paul imagines here isn't simply um, the wholeness of my physical body in isolation being put right, but the, all bodies being rightly related to my body. And this is really getting to this idea of shalom in the Bible, this idea that there's this harmonious interrelationship and harmony that's beautiful and creates flourishing. And again, this is what Paul is getting at. When he talks, he says, there's, and then he goes, this is a hard text, by the way. I'm trying to make it easy. When Paul talks about um, different kinds of flesh and different kinds of body, he, he's talking about Genesis 1. When God creates the heaven and the earth, right? He's talking about animals and fish and birds and stars and moon and the sun and earth and heavens. And and they all have their unique glory. Even stars themselves are not all alike. They all have their unique glory. And the human body has its own unique glory. And it's set in the middle of this universe of glory that God has created and that God is redeeming. And I think the application or the thing to take away from this is that, friends, that if, if the Christian life is, is, is a moving of the body, um, being drawn to that resurrection body that we will have someday fully, there's a way that our bodies become more beautiful. That, that we, they be, as they become more integrated, they become more whole, they become more beautiful. And, and by this, I don't necessarily, I, and I certainly do not mean they become more physically beautiful. But there's a way that, that the, the reality of resurrection, as, it, as we live into it, your life will become more beautiful because it will become more complete. It will become more whole. Rather than becoming uglier, you become more beautiful because there's symmetry, there's holiness. 
You know, we, we don't like this word, I mean, we have very little imagination for this word holy, but um, holiness is related to wholeness. But holiness really is God's moral beauty. That's what holiness is. It's God's moral beauty. It's, it's not necessarily that, that th- it's a beauty that's so beautiful that it repels us because we can't stand in its presence. It's too much to take. But the resurrection of the body is God taking his holiness, his glory, and he's, he's re-knitting re- our bodies with that beauty. And friends, so, so when you think about your body becoming more beautiful and whole in your life, it's that your body becomes this place of integration and, and healing and shalom for other bodies, for other people. That's part of the hope of resurrection. And the irony is this, is that the more our bodies taste and reflect that resurrection body that we will someday have, the more worldly our bodies become. The more worldly they become. Now I know this, this is actually very counterintuitive because it seems like Paul is saying the exact opposite. But bear with me. And we generally think about the resurrection as somehow God sort of, boom, taking us out of creation. Like God returns. Resurrection from the dead. I have escaped from this rotten created world, right? We tend to think about resurrection as our liberation from this material world. But that's not how Paul is thinking about the resurrection. To have a resurrection body is actually to have a worldly body. But by worldly, I don't mean that our, our bodies and our lives become reflective of the culture and society that we live in, but actually that we become, for the first time, the true inhabitants of the creation as God intended it. That we begin to inhabit God's good creation as he intended it. And there's a sense in which we become worldly, that we embrace this creation as God designed it. Again, let me look back at our text um, Paul says it is, so our bodies are sown natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. For thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. This last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. And then at the very, the very last verse, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now there's that's a very complicated text of Paul's. But first thing to just a high-level observation, when Paul is contrasting natural and spiritual, he is not contrasting uh, physical and immaterial. Of some material world, and now we have this immaterial spirit world. That's not the contrast. The contrast is, it's a moral contrast. It's, it's a cosmological contrast. In other words, it's, it's the difference between the old order that has been afflicted with the curse and with decay and corruption and the new order of creation that has been given life in Jesus Christ. And that's the contrast that Paul is, is driving. And this, this one phrase, which um, seems somewhat obscure, where Paul says, the first man became a living being, Adam. And the second Adam, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Now remember that um, in Genesis 2, God creates Adam. He, he takes this man like a potter and he he, he molds him together. And then it says that um, God blew into him the breath of life. And, and that word blew or breath is the word ruach, which is the word spirit. In other words, God inspirited him. God's creator spirit brought alive this man. And Paul is playing on this story. He's saying that the first man became a living being, 
a soulish being, that's the word in the Greek, a soul, because he's been enlivened by the creator. But the last Adam, the last Adam is different. He becomes a life-giving spirit. Where the first Adam received the spirit to be animated, the second Adam, Jesus Christ himself, he becomes the man who breathes Holy Spirit. That's how many think of it. He breathes Holy Spirit back on the creation. That's what's going on in the text. We tend to think about the Spirit, again, as that which is immaterial, that which deals with, with spirit things. But when you think about the Holy Spirit in the Bible, let me just give you a few references. The Spirit is not in contrast to the material world or some interior principle. The Spirit is the life-animating force of creation. It's the Spirit that hovers over the waters in Genesis 2. It's the Spirit that blows life into the Adam. It's the Spirit in the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel. It's the Spirit of God that hovers over the womb of Mary. How is Jesus conceived? He's conceived because the Holy Spirit hovers like a bird over her womb and creates new life. I think the best illustration of this is one of my favorite passages from the book of Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel is in exile. The temple has been destroyed, and he has this vision of this man, and he brings him, and he has this vision of the temple, of the new temple. And this man brings him to the temple, and what he sees is water flowing out of the temple, of the front of the temple, down the mountain. And the man walks him around the temple. And then he moves him further, and they keep taking measurements. And so as he moves further into the courtyard, closer to the temple, and he says that there's water that's flowing through, through the doors. It's like imagine a door where there's water just flowing through. That's the image. And as he moves closer, it's ankle deep, and then it's waist deep, and then it's like higher than he can, he can't, it's over his head. And he backs up and he stands on the bank of this river that is coming. And this is what he says. It's just, it's incredible. The water flows towards the eastern region and down to the Arabah and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. He's saying that this water that is flowing from the temple, once it hits the sea of salt, the Dead Sea, it turns it into fresh water. And it's a water that things can live in. And wherever the water goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be many fish. For this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. And then fishermen are standing beside the sea. And on the banks and on both sides of the river, there will be all kinds of trees for food. And there will be leaves that will not wither, nor there will be fruit that fails. And there will be fresh fruit every month because the water flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be found and their leaves for healing. You have the picture. Water of life. Everything this water touches, it creates life. Trees, animals, fish. Life healing. Friends, this temple and this water, this temple is the body of Jesus, and this water is the person of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, Jesus describes himself as a temple, and he says that rivers of flowing water will come out. And water is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. And the image that you should have here is this, is that Jesus coming into the world with his new temple, he comes in and the water of the Holy Spirit comes out, and it just washes over creation And it brings new life. Because where the presence of God is, there is life. New life. Revitalizing life.
I often um, appeal to C.S. Lewis's uh, The Great Divorce when it comes to understanding what the glory of the body will look like, and I want to remind you of that because I think Lewis captures a sense of the weightiness of the body, of the worldliness of the body, that the great divorce is a story of um, a group of people from hell that go to heaven on a bus <laughs> to walk around the outer skirts of heaven. And it's a story where there's all these exchanges between angels and redeemed human beings with the ghosts or the people who are in hell. But the thing about that story, which is so rich, is this, is that heaven is this place of incredible weightiness, that the, the, the grass, walking on the grass is too much for the people from hell because it's like spikes on their feet. It's just too heavy. It's too powerful. It's too... The, the, the rain that comes like rips through their bodies. See, friends, that's the glory. That's the glory of the resurrection body. That if you saw, and, and Lewis has in, in the, weight, or, um, the weight of glory, he says that if, riffing on him, if you saw your glorified body currently in your true self and you saw your future self, you would want to worship it. It would be just so glorious that you would actually want to fall down and worship it. It would overwhelm you with its beauty. Friends, the the resurrection of the body that we long and we look for, it's about becoming truly and fully human. Truly and fully human, this world that God created. I think Karl Barth is right when he says that the real mystery of Easter is not that God is glorified in it. For sure he is. The real mystery is that man is exalted in it. Think about this. At Easter, it's not just that God triumphs and God vindicates himself, but he, human beings are exalted. Human nature is exalted. Jesus ascends to heaven with a human body, and he doesn't cast it off when he gets there. He keeps it. He will have it for all eternity. How incredible is that? That God did not want to be God without us. That the bridegroom came from heaven to liberate his bride, and he is there waiting, waiting to be united, to become one flesh with his bride. To have a resurrection body is to have a body that is fully alive with the love of God, fully alive with the presence of God. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead, for Christ having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. O God, we pray you give us an imagination for the resurrection body that is to come. May you shape our hearts, our very bodies around that truth. And may you